Hello, this is Jennifer with Dream Infringement. Thank you so much for tuning in this Monday evening. Dream Infringement is comprised of three longtime friends, me and then radio power couple Emily and Bobby. We love to tell stories, listen to music, uh, reference a lot of pop culture, some history, personal anecdotes, mental health advocacy, because of course, that's kind of what we're about. But today, we're not about that, because it's just a solo show with me, Jennifer. I know, I know. Order will be restored next week when we're all three at it again. But I hope you don't mind too much keeping me company for an hour this evening. So, about the theme, I was thinking about how hard it is to mix art and business. Most artists have to be inspired by something, and you can't force that. The more you try to force it, sometimes the more elusive it then becomes. For musicians, as much as they may like performing in front of people and entertaining, they're not machines. They need time to regroup, time to reflect, time to experience life again, and therefore gather inspiration. And the music industry is in no way conducive to this creative process. They're a business. They're about money. They want contracts. They want a certain amount of albums and songs. And they want dependable hits. They want tours and they want promotions. And musicians get frustrated. They feel trapped. They feel like a commodity. And we can see some of that play out when you see like different stars have very bad behavior or even addictions just to try and keep up with the physical and emotional toll of these schedules of touring and promoting and creating and keeping up a certain image. And these labels, these companies aren't always honest with them and they aren't always fair. And sometimes artists strike back with what they have, which is their music and their voice. These are stories and songs of artists speaking out about it. Today's theme was actually inspired by something I read about the band Heart and their song Barracuda. Ann Wilson revealed in interviews that the song was about their anger towards Mushroom Records, who has a publicity, that word is really hard, who has a publicity stunt released a made-up story of a inappropriate romantic relationship involving Anne and her sister Nancy. I mean, gross. Surely there was something else they could have come up with, but whatever. Yeah, that would make me pretty angry too. So let's listen to their song and uh, talk a little bit about it. So the song Barracuda came out in 1977. I've heard it before, but I've never really listened to it knowing the background. I think the energy is really great. I really like the guitar work. Uh, looking at some of the lyrics, you're lying so low in the weeds. I bet you're gonna ambush me. You'd have me down, 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 down on my knees. Now wouldn't you, Barracuda? Oh, sell me, sell me, the per the porpoise said. Porpoise. That's got to be hard to sing. But yeah, it definitely evokes imagery of a predator. It's really subtle what it's about. 
So good job, Heart. All right, and so for my next song choice, in 1967, Van Morrison walked into a recording studio in New York and recorded 31 songs. All of them were awful. That was the point, though. His label, Bang Records, wanted more pop hits like Brown Eyed Girls, a.k.a. that song that made us lots of money. And he wanted to go into a more mystical, jazz-inspired sound, like the kind that inspired his 1968 album, Astral Weeks. But his contract stipulated that he owed Bang Records exactly 36 songs. So in one session, he cranked them all out. He improvised. The tactic didn't quite work, and his songs went unreleased until 2017. And he finally got out of the Bang record contract when the owner, Burt Burns, died of a heart attack. But let us hear one of these songs of malicious compliance, this very heavily uh, improvised masterpiece that is Ringworm. I can see by the look on your face that you've got Ringworm. I'm very sorry, but... I have to tell you that you've got ringworm. Well, if Van Morrison's musical career wouldn't have worked out, he could have always fallen back on improv, for which he has a talent. Uh, the next song is by the Ting Tings, and it's called That Is Not My Name. Right after they signed with Mercury Records, the executives who signed them left the label, and then the band was dropped. And they said, back at the time, we weren't specifically trying to write a song about anything. We were just trying to have fun with it. But when we look back at the lyrics, we realize they're all about frustration. You feel like your career is over at 22, and you haven't even gotten a record out. It was like, you really are that forgettable. So let's take a listen. They call me hell. They call me Stacy. They call me hell. They call me Jane. This song was released in 2008. The lyrics go, And though I'm dressed up, out and all, With everything considered, they forgot my name. I like the sentiment. There's kind of a female empowerment vibe happening. Like being overlooked by men who didn't think it was important enough to remember who you were. Or people who use terms like honey sweetie darling uh, because they don't remember your name and don't want to make an effort to so they just kind of use a catch-all moving on to our next song this is one of the wildest stories i have ever heard about the music industry i can't believe i didn't know about this before Okay, so until the Spice Girls came along, TLC was the biggest selling girl band of all time. But despite selling 65 million records, they were only making 75,000 a piece. And this was mainly due to a contract they'd signed with manager Perry Reed, which gave her ownership of the name, a percentage of their publishing, and a share of every dollar made. Frustrated, the band decided to take action. Storming the offices of the record label Arista, 
and holding President Clive Davis hostage at gunpoint. We were hot because we didn't understand how we were selling all these records with nothing to show for it, Chile said. For backup, they brought along a gang of women that rapper Lisa Lefty Lopez had met in rehab. These were big girls, huge and scary, recalled Thomas. The standoff was eventually resolved peacefully, and the group renegotiated their contracts. We were some little gangsters, laughed Chili, as she recalled the incident. That is amazing. That shows you how much money that record label wanted to make that they didn't press charges. <laughs> they were like, you know what? We can resolve this peacefully. That what What's a little hostage negotiation between friends? I mean, really. Uh, so this is a TLC with the song Scrubs. I don't want your number, no. I don't want to give you mine and no. I don't want to meet you nowhere, no. Don't want any old time and no. I don't want no scrub. A scrub is a I feel like this song isn't holding up that well under our current economy because, like, most of us are kind of scrubs right now. But I appreciate the sentiment. I could be like, yes, you can live at home, but do you do your own laundry? <laughs> oh, you're hanging out the side of your best friend's ride. Are you carpooling for the environment? Because gas is expensive. I totally feel you. See, just a little different these days. So the next song, next up, is by Maroon 5, and it's Harder to Breathe. They said they were feeling suffocated by their record label to produce a certain kind of sound. Harder to Breathe was written because their label told them they needed more songs on their album. And fed up with it, the lead singer Adam Levine just dashed off Harder to Breathe as an angry rant to his record company. He said that song comes surely from wanting to throw something. It was the 11th hour and the label wanted more songs. It was the last crack. I wanted to make a record and the label was applying a lot of pressure, but I'm glad they did, he said. I think he's probably the only one on my list of musicians who <laughs> stepped back and was like, oh yeah, I'm glad they did that. So anyway, let's uh listen to what he dashed off as an angry response to his label. So this song came out in 2002. Some of his lyrics are, how dare you say that my behavior is unacceptable? so condescending, unnecessarily critical. I have the tendency of getting very physical, so watch your step, because if I do, you'll need a miracle. You drain me dry and make me wonder why I'm even here. It's hard to tell that it's based on a record company, but I don't really know what else to add, because I've never really been a fan of Maroon 5. It's hard for me to be objective. I think it's that nothing about them feels very genuine to me, like everything is there for the effect, but not because that was somebody's heart and soul effort. 
my views don't reflect the views of KSKQ. There's probably a lot of stuff I like that other people would uh, really dislike for the same reason. So, yeah. Moving on. In 2009, on the song Free Me, Josh Stone would sing Free Me, Free Me EMI. After her label was taken over by a private equity firm in 2007, she felt she had no connection with the new owners. And when her fourth album flopped, she decided to cut ties with EMI. However, she had to pay back the advance she'd been given when she signed her contract. She says, they gave me my musical freedom and I gave them their money. It's never been confirmed how much she had to pay back to them, but it's been put anywhere between two to seven million pounds. So even more than dollars. But whatever the amount, she reasoned it was a fair price to pay for her happiness. I think it's interesting how different people would view money. I think some would say, wow, that's millions and I will just grit my teeth. I will endure it. And others would be like, they might put a monetary value on my happiness, whatever the cost I'm willing to pay it because that's worth it to me. So here we have the song Free Me by Joss Stone. So the next song up is by Jeffrey Lewis, and it's called Don't Let the Record Company Take You Out for Lunch. He is a comic book writer and illustrator, and it's not really about a specific label, but it's about the business practices of record companies in general. And I know this catches a lot of artists by surprise. I remember when we did an episode and I talked about Jewel and how she had read up on sort of these practices of charging things back to the artist and how she wouldn't accept anything from the record companies that she could do herself uh, so she could actually like make a profit off of her own music so let's take a listen but don't let the record label take you out to lunch because every sip of soup has got to get recouped then you get a good review and then you get a bad review so don't get suckered either way because none of them know you and don't let the record label take you out to lunch because they'll call you a cab and put it on your tab i'm leaving town for a while but i'll be in touch in the lyrics he says because every sip of soup is going to get recouped don't let the record label take you out to lunch because they'll call you a cab and put it on your tab. In an interview with Salt Lily magazine, he said in regards to record labels, they don't really make it clear to you that the artist is paying for everything. It really is the case that if the record label takes an artist out to lunch, you think you're getting this free lunch. It's so nice, they're buying me food, but they will take that whole bill and put that on your account. That money comes out of your record sales, so it's more like you took them out to lunch. No one makes that clear. They're just like, oh, we'll find someone to pick you up from the airport, and you'll have a driver. It's like, oh, that's so nice. This is such a wonderful treatment. But all of that money gets charged back to the artist. Then you have to sell that many more records before you make any money. That whole system just felt... I don't know, I just didn't want to get involved in that. 
I don't know, I just never felt like I was going to sell very many records. So it just seemed like a waste of money to be spending money on all of this other stuff. I just felt like I was a pretty small artist and I was going to stay a pretty small artist. It just seemed wasteful to have these fancy things. I think for him being, uh, they call it a DIY musician, is probably the much better option. He sees how things are skewed for the record companies to make money more so than it is for the artist. He's just not down with that, and I wouldn't be down with that either, were I him. Artist Prince is legendary for his contract dispute, and I never really knew the background of it till now. So how it went down, he signed a $1 million six-album deal with Warner Brothers in 1992. It was the biggest contract ever signed by a solo artist, but the catch was that Warner Brothers received ownership of his entire body of work. His tour manager, Alan Leeds, would later say he believed it was because Prince was eager to trump the multi-million dollar deals that Janet Jackson and Madonna had recently signed. He was so desperate to get that headline that he was allowing his team to negotiate away certain royalties, certain publishing rights, and all kinds of things to get bigger guarantees. As the reality of the deal dawned on him, Warner Brothers demanded that he should leave more time between his album releases, fearful that the public would grow weary of just his prolific output which since he had a six album deal with Warner Brothers meant that he was going to be with Warner Brothers for a longer period of time. And this whole dispute is what set him off to change his name to a symbol. He released a statement that the company owns the name Prince and all related music marketed under Prince. I became merely a pawn used to produce more money for Warner Brothers. Reading this, I feel like I'm not understanding a big piece of the puzzle. It's, I'm thinking, well, yeah, you're being used to produce more money for Warner Brothers. That's kind of why they're like a record label. <laughs> That's what they do. Um, so I feel like I said, I feel like I'm missing something here. But uh, his feud with them ran for seven years, during which time he took to writing the word slave on his face and eyeliner. In the end, he fulfilled his obligation by delivering a series of throwaway albums packed with offcuts and unfinished ideas. Ultimately, he did prove Warner Brothers right, releasing so much material in such a short space of time while not really having a quality control filter in place damaged his commercial prospects for years. But it was a cautionary tale. Artists are now more likely to demand ownership of their master tapes or to pursue alternative distribution deals. Anyway, this is actually one of the songs that came during that seven-year time frame uh, that people consider to be not as bad as <laughs> some of the others. This song is called Gold. There's a mountain and it's mighty high You cannot see the top Unless you fly, and there's a morning of proven ground, and nowhere to go. 
The next song is NoFX, Dinosaurs Will Die. This was released back in 2000. It wasn't a complaint about their specific label at the time. It was kind of a song uh, with a future prediction and then also talking about some of the rules of the record industry that made it hard for artists to actually keep any integrity uh, to their craft. NoFX at this time had run their own label for years and they anticipated the shift in the music industry. The big change being the internet, file sharing, free distribution of music. You know, record labels were no longer the gatekeepers of what music got into the public spotlight. For independent labels and smaller bands, they had an opportunity to reach a lar larger and wider audience. And some bands were able to make it big without having a record label at all. So we'll go ahead and play the song. Some of their lyrics go, we'll show them how it's supposed to be. Music written from devotion, not ambition, not for fame. Zero people are exploited. We're going to fight against the mass appeal. We're going to kill the seven record deal. Make records that have more than one good song. So the All the Years of Hit and Run uh, references the way record labels would sign a band, just get all they could out of them for a few years, and then just drop them. And then when a band signs a seven record deal with a company, they have to release albums, whether they have material or not. And the result can be just really subpar albums, but it makes the label money so they don't care. And then you have albums that only have maybe one good song. That's because the musicians were trying to fill more like a quota then really put some like amazing things out there. This sheds a little bit more light on what Prince went through, but I still have a harder time seeing it because that was the biggest contract ever signed at that time. So it seemed a little bit more like he was getting compensated for his efforts, less like he was getting taken advantage of, though he evidently really thought that he was. But moving on to our next song, Frank Ocean signed to Def Jam Records in 2009 and then found himself in a bit of a pickle. The label wouldn't release his music because he didn't have a big enough profile, but he couldn't get a big enough profile if the label wouldn't release his music. So he took matters into his own hands and self-financed and self-released a mixtape called Nostalgia Ultra. And the buzz around that prompted Def Jam to get behind his debut, which was called Channel Orange and was nominated for Best Album at the 2013 Grammys. So then, severing ties with his management, his legal team, and his publicist, and using his new wealth to purchase all of his master recordings, he bought himself out of his contract. As a condition of the arrangement, Def Jam was given distribution rights to his next album, Endless. 
but he insisted it could only be released as a streaming video on Apple Music, denting the label's ability to profit off of it. Then the day after Endless came out, he put out Blonde, Channel Orange's official follow-up and superior record, whose existence had been completely hidden from his former label. So he satisfied the conditions of his contract and also was able to release the music that he wanted to right away. Speaking to the New York Times, he described the release as the final move in a seven-year chess game. This guy is, he's like a master strategist. Uh, I'm, I'm impressed. Uh, so let's hear what's considered to be the highest ranking song uh, from his release, Blonde, and it's called Siegfried. Dream of the thought that could dream about a thought that could think of the dream of the thought that could think of dreaming and getting the glimmer of God. I be dreaming and dreaming the thought that could dream about a thought that could think of dreaming a dream where I cannot. Where I cannot. This next song is by The Clash and it's called Complete Control. It was released in 1977. And the song is often cited as one of punk's greatest singles. It's a fiery commentary on record companies, managers, and the state of punk music itself. The motivation for the song being the band's label, CBS Records, releasing their song Remote Control without asking them, which infuriated the group. Stereogum described it as this extraordinary airing of grievances, a desperately catchy catalog of the many ills visited upon a young band experiencing its first forays into corporate culture. Let's hear this desperately catchy cataloging of the many ills, shall we? Here is The Clash with Complete Control. So that was complete control by The Clash. And I mean, they start off saying what the issue is when they sing, they said release remote control, but we didn't want it on the label. They said we'd be artistically free when we signed that bit of paper. They meant let's make lots of money and worry about it later. So yeah, that would be hard when you're like, no, I don't want this song this way. I have a vision. I have a certain way of things. And the record label is like, sorry, not sorry, and goes on and does what they want. So we're going to do a little bit of a 180 and go from The Clash to Sarah Bareilles with Love Song. She's a singer-songwriter, and her record label had a very specific image in mind for what they wanted her to be in the public eye. In particular, she was supposed to write love songs. That's what they wanted. You are a love songwriter. So she wrote a song about how she doesn't like her record label forcing her to write love songs. It took off. I mean, this is a pretty popular song. I mean, I wish the things that I didn't want to do when I complained about them had such great results. Let's listen to it. This is Love Song by Sarah Bareilles. I'm not gonna write you a love song, cause you ask- 
hour. Uh, next week, my conspirators in radio hijinkery uh, will be back. <laughs> that was not the word I was looking for. Shenanigans! That was it. My co hosts of Radio Shenanigans sounds much better than hijinkery. We'll be back. And it, I, that will be an improvement. So <laughs> please tune in. Uh, we're on Mondays from 6 to 7. And there's a bunch of other shows and programs that KSKQ has to offer. I encourage you to look at the website take a gander, if you will, over all the different shows, and I think you'll probably find something that you'll like. Yes, if you want to binge listen to all of Dream Infringement, like from start to finish, from our origin story, baby Dream Infringement, to what you have now, you can. Either go to SoundCloud or iTunes or any kind of podcasty app. Just type in Dream Infringement. We're also on Instagram and Facebook if you want to see the faces behind the voices. Though, I mean, it's kind of like pulling back the curtain, right? Or as Bobby would say, that you'd see how the sausage was made, only you wouldn't because we're not making sausage. We're just being people with bodies and voices instead of just the disembodied voice you hear on the radio. But if that appeals to you... (laughs) Thank you so much for spending the hour with me. Bye.